0: Sheena Della from Pella through June 30th at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Choose 40% off installation or six year no interest financing. Get details now at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855 Pella WI.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. The Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. This is not designed to take anything away from the, the Brewers' recent success, winning four in a row against Arizona, because you you got to play the games. But Arizona is a hot mess. The, the, these numbers are almost staggering. They're 20-41, and 41, which is the worst record in baseball. That helped by losing four in a row to the Brewers, but, but it gets worse. Um, they, they've lost five in a row. They've lost eight out of their last ten, but here is the staggering number. They've lost 17 games in a row on the road. 17 games in a row on the road you would almost think that by by accident you, you'd win one game that that i don't know what the all-time record for futility is but I, and, and maybe it's something huge because baseball has been played forever and stuff but that team they've lost 17 games in a row on the road so it, it's not just who you play it's it's when you play them I and right now the brewers certainly caught Arizona. At the right time, they just—it's kind of like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. There was that game the other night where they they out hit the Brewers by like seven or eight, and still, you know, ended up losing. So, I mean, I'll, I'll take them as a Brewers fan. And Brewers now go to Cincinnati, and Cincinnati. Um, they're they're doing a little bit better. They're almost a 500 team. They've won four in a row and seven out of their last ten. But but I mean, if if you were looking at a time to play Arizona, this is the time. Seventeen games in a row they've lost on the road. Just almost unbelievable. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover on today's program, so let's get right to it. Uh, in in West Bend, downtown West Bend, there is a, a very very nice park called Regner Park. It, it's in the news because unfortunately. At their, in, at their, their swimming area, a a young boy drowned over the weekend, and it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of a horrible sort of story, um, under those circumstances. But Regner Park was in the news before that, because every week they have a music in the park sort of program on, on Thursday. And what happened was, last Thursday, as organizers were setting up for the music, What happened is a couple of the organizers found these little, a couple plastic pipes that were in the area where the music was going to be. Once they found these plastic pipes, they immediately called the police. The police shut it down. They brought in the bomb squad. And ultimately, you know, after searching the park for oh the better part of an hour or two, they found 10 of these plastic pipes that were hidden throughout the the park. Now, the immediate suspicion was, are these pipe bombs? In another life, I used to prosecute people um, for, for making pipe bombs, and I won't go into the detail about how you make them, but these are pipe bombs are just nasty things and unfortunately they they're very easy to make by people who you know have access to going to a hardware store and buying some stuff so th- these pipes and I'm I'm looking at them typically they're not plastic typically I think they're they're made out of out of metal but but regardless you you look at these 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 are 10 of these small pipes, and they're capped off at both ways. And I can certainly understand why, in today's day and age, somebody finding something suspicious like that would say, wait a second, we've got to figure out what this is. And ultimately, like I say, they called in the bomb squad, and they determined that these were all, Benign. So th- these were not pipe bombs, but they were planted all throughout the area, and the events that they were going to have on Thursday night and thereafter were canceled. Well, he- here's what the story is. Apparently, there was a. They've identified a 51 year old woman from Ozaki County, and she has confessed, such as it is, to planting these these plastic pipes. She says, "Look, I was I I, I was going to do a scavenger hunt." And at least so far that the details of this are kind of unclear. But she said, I was going to do, a, we were going to do a scavenger hunt. And so I, I planted these things around. And, and no, I, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't ask for permission. It's just kind of this public park. It didn't occur to me that people were going to find these things and, and freak out. I mean, th- these weren't bombs. I didn't intend to have bombs. I just kind of put these things around the park because we were going to do that. Didn't intend to disrupt the music. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't think uh, about this. I didn't think people would find these and freak out. It was not my intention to, you know, scare anybody. And I'm sorry if people were in fact scared, but that uh, this was going to be a scavenger hunt. All right. Our number is 855-6161620. That is the accurate mortgage talk and text line. Let us assume for the sake of argument that this woman is, is telling the truth, that she wasn't the, these, these different you know pipes, these plastic pipes weren 't planted with the idea that we 're going to try to freak people out and 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 uh, cause the concerts to be scheduled and things like that let 's say that in this case, the cigar is the cigar it's look i, I we were going to do the scavenger hunt no i didn 't tell anybody i didn 't ask for permission. I just I put these things out here. I didn't think that anybody would believe that these were pipe bombs and we'd have all this this these cancellations. Let's assume for the sake of argument that that is true. It doesn't change the fact, of course, that the musical event had to be canceled, that you had to have the bomb squad there, that a lot of people's lives got disrupted. And my guess is a couple of the volunteers who found these things were kind of freaked out. Here's the question, 855-616-1620, which is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Apparently, authorities out in Washington County are trying to decide whether they should go ahead and bring a criminal charge against her. The charge, um, in all likelihood, would be like disorderly conduct, you know, doing something which causes a disruption. Misdemeanor. So it's not like it's a felony. It's not like anybody's talking about sending a lady to prison for five years or 10 years, but it would be a criminal charge that could get her put on probation, maybe some jail time, maybe a fine. Her story is, again, it was just a scavenger hunt. It didn't occur to me that people were going to think like this. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you do with this lady? And again, let's assume for the sake of argument that her story is accurate, that she wasn't some mad bomber. She wasn't trying to freak people out. She was just putting these things out there for a scavenger hunt in the public park and didn't realize that some people might think, oh, my God, these are pipe bombs. Do you charge her Or do you just say, look, this was something dumb, or you weren't thinking about this? What do you do with the woman who planted these various plastic pipes? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. What would you do if you're the DA?
1: Back for more,
2: here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, that's the Akinet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So the lady admits that she put a a bunch of these these end-capped-off plastic pipes all throughout the park in West Bend, Prior to the the big music event that they were going to have on Thursday night, she says, look, this was a scavenger hunt. I wasn't thinking. I didn't intend that people – I didn't realize that people would think that these might be pipe bombs. I certainly didn't mean to cause all this trouble. But she did cause the trouble. So now the district attorney is deciding, what do you do? And there's really three options. One is – you bring criminal disorderly conduct charges against her. The statute says that if you engage in disorderly conduct under circumstances in which the conduct tends to cause or provoke a disturbance, you're guilty of a Class B misdemeanor. Um, There's also a civil disorderly conduct charge, like a municipal citation. It's not a crime, but you're issued a ticket or a fine for your behavior. And the third option is, of course, just to, to do nothing and say, look, no harm, no foul here. She made a mistake. She did not have any criminal intent, what do you end up doing? 855-616-1620. Jeff, I would say they should let it go if this person does not have a record. I'm assuming that case. If they were metal pipes and full of nails or sharp screws, then the police could pursue charges. Well, if they were metal pipes full of sharp screws and nails, you got a whole different thing. At that point in time, you're not looking at disorderly conduct. To me, you're you're looking at, at felonies. You're looking at felonies. If these were, if these were, you, you, if they're right, in that case, those are close enough to pipe bombs to bring all sorts of different charges. Um, Jeff, um, Let's see, how can anybody in today's USA be so clueless as to think you could do something like this without permission from the mis- municipality? I would charge her. Jeff, I'm curious where she lives. Sounds like a neighbor that doesn't like live music. No, the, the only description I have, and they're not releasing her name because she hasn't been charged with anything, is it says that she's an Ozaki County resident. This is, you know, Regner Park is is in downtown West Bend. Um Let's see, uh uh, Jeff, I think that uh, you have to bring, we have to start enforcing laws to get people to follow laws and get this country back to what it used to be. Even though it's only a misdemeanor, I should believe she should be charged. Otherwise, it will be the boy who cried wolf. And one time, you know, we won't respond to a false alarm. Jeff, do nothing. Um, if you are familiar with geocaching, people do this all the time. Laugh at the foolishness of the whole situation and get on with the important things in life. Huh. Jeff uh, Jason from West Dallas. The woman should be charged with a misdemeanor. She should have thought her plans out before planting the containers. You know, it, it is interesting because the person before is talking about geocaching. That's where people do do plant stuff in in different parks. With but in this case, I mean she didn't tell anybody about it and. Clearly, I mean, I'll take her to word that she didn't realize that people were going to freak out when they saw him, but people do freak out when they see him. Jeff, charge her. Stupidity and ignorance is no excuse. Should probably think things through a lot better and that way get permission. It could have been avoided then. Jeff, no charges, innocent mistakes. She took responsibility for it. If this is a misdemeanor, the whole geocaching community needs to be regulated. Jeff, why would you use plastic piping in today's age? Why would you not use something else to put scavenger hunt goods either she's really stupid or completely clueless to the current world we live in good intentions bad decisions well you know that's interesting because if instead of these being these pipes that people suspected could have been pipe bombs if instead she had put i don't know little gnomes or something nobody would have freaked out and thought that this was potentially a bomb 855-616-1620 ryan in brookfield ryan good afternoon
3: hey good afternoon to you what do you think well, I don't think that charges should be levied against this woman. Um, I think, you know, you have to look at the totality of the circumstances and what ultimately our intentions were. I understand law enforcement, you know, if they were called to respond to this, that they need to bring this in front of the district attorney for them to review. And depending on what this woman's maybe criminal history is, if any.
2: Yeah, let's assume so none. I, I, don't get, I don't get the idea that this is a bad actor. Let, so let's assume none for the sake of the, our conversation.
3: Yeah, then definitely unfortunately it's a well publicized opportunity for education on on placing things like that out in public. But I think that the the district attorneys and, and law enforcement time and and energy could be better spent elsewhere with other individuals that are out there um you know doing things that are are far more uh disorderly and and um potentially um you know, right. dangerous in the community.
2: Okay, now, Rand, let, let me let me share with you a, a, a text I have from somebody. And in, in in addition to canceling the music in the park, they also have stuff in right a couple blocks away downtown West Bend. They have music and stuff, and they had to cancel all that too because you know they were afraid that there was a mad pipe bomber out there. So here's a text I got, Jeff. I was supposed to volunteer at Music on Main last Thursday, and we were told it was canceled because of a threat. The lady cost us a ton of money. Also, cost the music at Park, park money um it also scared a lot of people because we were told to go home so this did cause a huge disruption and did cause cost a whole bunch of people money do 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 we just write that off no
3: i think what you have to look at is the response of law enforcement to that so i come from a family of law enforcement officers uh one of which um uh, was a bomb recognition expert and that's something you wouldn't know of course as a caller here but um, it, it would seem that, you know, you got to contain the situation and cordon off an area, a safe distance. Um, and mm-hmm. then I think the response by law enforcement has to be appropriate based on, you know, their observation. Obviously, field police officers aren't going to know if a device is truly a, a bomb or not. Right. But, you know, to blanket cancel all these events in this sort of large geographic area seems to be overblown in my opinion
2: okay well thanks i i I gotta i disagree with that i mean it just for the i mean i my my wife used to live about well you could see regner park from from where where she lived and so um you're 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 in close proximity to to downtown i mean if a few blocks away. So, I mean, I, I understand the reaction. If you if you believe or you are concerned that there are pipe bombs that are planted all over this park, I think that the logical conclusion is, okay, well, maybe there's pipe bombs elsewhere and we're going to have this big gathering. So I, I don't criticize law enforcement for saying, okay, we, we've got to cancel all these different events. A number of people are saying with, with geocaching, you, you're you supposed to get permission anytime you you plant it. And that would certainly... That would certainly make sense that, OK, if you're going to plant something in a public park that you have to alert somebody and say, oh, by the way, I'm putting, you know, I'm, I'm putting these things that are in there because if somebody finds them, it, it could cause the problem. So where do I come down on? OK, Jeff, my let's see, my family and I hide geocaches in the Fox Valley area. We have used different containers, but if we thought it was questionable, we put a label on the container. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, that's. That's it. Okay, so where do I come down on this? Well, I I'm going to kind of take the goldilocks approach on this. Not too not too hot, not too cold, right in the middle. Do I think you do nothing? My answer would be no, because this Again, when I was a prosecutor, we might have called this felony stupid. Now, I know this isn't a felony, but this is a stupid thing to do in today's day and age, to not tell anybody and to put these things all over a park right around an area where you know that there's going to be kids and you know there's going to be all sorts of people. So do, do I do nothing? No. I think you have to do something. Would I bring criminal charges, a Class B misdemeanor? Again, assuming my factual scenario is correct, that there wasn't an evil intent, that this was just stupid, I, I don't know that there's anything that you gain from you know giving the woman a criminal record and bring her in the court system and getting her a fine and, and giving her a criminal record and putting her on probation. You I mean you're not gonna send her to jail for this, I don't think, unless there's something there So I, I, I don't see that. So what is the in between? What is the Goldilocks solution? What's not too hot, what's not too cold, what's just right? To me it is the civil disorderly conduct citation. You you give her the citation you you hit her with a fine i don't know how steep the fine should be but it, you're she's not going to be able to you know to reimburse the, the bomb squad. She's, my guess is, you know, music on Maine and West Bend and this music festival in, at Regner Park. My guess is they lost tens and tens of thousands of dollars by having to cancel it. So you're not going to fine her all that. You're not going to give her an order of restitution because restitution is probably well into five figures, maybe even six figures for all the different revenue you lost. But you, you do, I, I think have to say, look, this, this was, this conduct was irresponsible. It was, in fact, disorderly. I give her the municipal citation. I, I fine her for this. Maybe a tad of restitution on top of that, recognizing that you're you're not going to this this again. This this cost tens of thousands of dollars. I have no doubt, whether the lost business or the bomb squad coming out. You, you have to do something. I don't think she needs a criminal charge, but I don't think you can do nothing. We'll continue to follow the story and see how the authorities decide on this. But um, bottom line takeaway of this, if you're into the geocaching and things like that, um, don't, don't make them look like pipe bombs. <laughs> it's just nothing good is going to come of this.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: So during the newscast, um, we were highlighting Tony Evers is on with Scafidi earlier this morning, and apparently the lead of that is he doesn't believe that extended unemployment benefits lead to a worker shortage. In other words, he doesn't accept the premise that by paying people an extra $300 so they make more by not seeking employment, that that is causing part of the worker shortage. He doesn't believe that. I swear, sometimes you just don't know what to say. I, I mean, other than you, you're you're really kidding, right? Now, I, I mean, I I, I understand there, there's there's all sorts of motives, and we've talked about this before. Why somebody like Tony Evers and why some other Democrat governors might might want to give people a disincentive to go back to work? Maybe it's a subtle way of trying to enforce force employers to pay more money and therefore up wages. I mean, there, there, there's reasons you could make, but. I think, frankly, it's just flat out stupid to try to say that you don't believe that extended unemployment benefits that pay a lot of people more to stay at home and go to work, that that's infecting people's decision. I, it's just I, you You almost kind of wonder, you know, have we legalized marijuana in this state already? And is the governor smoking it? Because clearly that's the factor. Clearly, that is the intention. The desire is we're going to continue to have the taxpayers underwrite people not going to work. A- and maybe there's all sorts of reasons why you can justify that from a policy perspective. I don't think so. But to say, well, I don't believe there's any content, but connection between extended unemployment benefits and the worker shortage is just Dumb. I mean, there's just you can't even argue that that's the case. It would seem to me, but that is the point that our governor is making. All right. So over the weekend, I, I had occasion to talk to somebody who works in the school system in Waukesha, and I'm not going to identify the particular school because. I think that this person I was talking to kind of felt that, you know, they they might get some some fallback on this, some some blowback on this. But they they said they were telling me about how there were meetings last week and how in a number of the Waukesha schools in Waukesha County, um, there had been a decision made that for the fall semester. So starting in September of 2021, school would resume. But parents would continue to be given the virtual option, the option of keeping your kids home and having virtual learning. And the person I was talking to is in the school system was just you know, like shaking their head, saying, wait, we can't believe that they're, they're doing this because, again, we, we had – You know, in Waukesha, at least in some of the school districts, what they did is they had, you know, the hybrid learning through the whole thing, very, very few instances of COVID. And this is before everybody started getting vaccinated and things like this. But so I said, well, what what's the decision as to why, what's the justification for why you're going to continue to offer this virtual option? And what was explained to me is that uh, the administrations were saying, well, they're very concerned that people might leave the school district. And if, if X number of kids leave the school district, it costs them X amount of dollars in, in public support. So in an effort to make sure that, that nobody leaves, what they're going to do is they're going to continue to offer virtual schooling. And I said, All right, I'm just kind of curious as to somebody who, you know, was, was in the school system for the entire last year. Is there any rational reason for that? And the person I'm talking to said, no, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're past that. You know, we, we were past that. You know, months and months ago, you know, we weren't having a a problem with COVID. And, you know, most of the kids, their parents were incredibly anxious to get them back in school. And I think that we all agree that the virtual learning is a far and and this it starts with Joe Biden and it goes down to me. I think everybody in between agrees that virtual learning is a poor alternative to the in-person instruction. It was necessitated because of the pandemic. But now that we're coming out of the pandemic, the idea that you're going to continue to do virtual learning for people, and there's an expense to that, and you're going to do it primarily because you're concerned that a couple parents might freak out and pull their kids out of class, I, I think is absurd. Our number, eight five five six one is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are talking about fall of 2021. And I understand why we've been in virtual with that virtual option. I understand why we've been in that for the last, like, year and a half. But by the time the new school year starts, unless. There is some dramatic new information that comes down and shows a huge resurgence of the virus or something like that, because you always have to be flexible. I understand that things can always change, but unless there is some huge resurgence of the virus, isn't it time for school districts to go back and say, look, time time to bring kids back in person and parents, you got to get over this. You, you just do MPS. Um they're, um, by the way, going to continue that they, they say they're going to continue to offer virtual learning as well, but they're not exactly sure how they're going to do it. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Virtual learning is is a difficult thing to begin with. And if you've got 95 percent of the kids that are back in class. It becomes extremely difficult to try to do effectively when you're only dealing with a very, very small number of people. And if the real motivation is simply, well, we're afraid that a couple parents might get their undies in a bundle and leave and go try to find some place that's offering virtual learning, that to me is not a good excuse. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Absent a resurgence of COVID. Should we continue to offer virtual learning to kids next September? We discuss in a minute. My answer is no. Welcome back to Jeff
1: Wagner on
2: WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Don, Don, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon lost on 855-616-1620 which is the academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line Jeff I'm a teacher and my district is offering virtual learning to a limited number of students based solely on medical need it is meant to be a small group and for extenuating needs the superintendent has made it clear that the virtual academy as it's being called may have limited specialty options I believe it should be available on a limited basis in such instances but disincentivized for most it was a very hard year and I look forward to putting the Zoom teaching world behind me. To which I say Amen. See, that's that's sort of the the deal in this. I mean, I understand if you've got a a, a group of people with extreme medical hardships, and, and maybe you have to create sort of a virtual academy, but to offer it as an option. And as, again, my source was telling me, the justification is, well, we're afraid that some parents still might not feel comfortable sending their kids back to school, so we we don't want them pulling the kids out of the classroom and maybe going somewhere else because we will lose money if you do that. Um, Jeff, I think having a virtual option is a good idea only if it is done as a separate program. Several school districts around the state have virtual schools with teachers dedicated to those classes on a completely different format than just setting up a screen in a classroom and trying to Zoom in together. That does not work. But if you want to create a separate school dedicated strictly to virtual learning, that makes sense, to which I would say it, it only makes sense if if you've got enough people to justify that, and if the reason is, again, you've got a handful of kids that have medical needs, not just an, an option for that. Um Jeff, I think it's all political. They're going to continue to offer that as an option for the few families who feel they don't want to be in person and still want that option. But what I'm nervous about is by allowing that option... Does that mean in the classroom we're still going to be 90% using a computer? Because as a substitute teacher in our Catholic school this year, I was dumbfounded by the amount of time these kids spent on a computer even though we were in the classroom. And my feedback to our school was if they want to continue to allow virtual, it's okay if a kid is out sick and they don't miss anything, they can still log on, Um, but only in those situations. Jeff, so they're actually coming out and admitting it's not about what's best for the kids, but What's about for their best about for their pocketbook? Well, a person I was talking to yesterday said that that's what they said. They said, "Look, um, you know, we are concerned that even if it's a small number of parents that decide to bail on the school district, it could cost them a bunch of money. So we don't want that happening. Even if it's going to be a distraction for the teachers, even if it's going to be a distraction for the other kids." And I guess my other question would be rhetorically: I mean, how how long how long do we do this? And I, I ask that sincerely and like I, I at what point in time do we stop and say okay we, we've got to get back to like some sense of normal are, are we going to be virtual for the rest of our lives i mean clearly i i understand why we did this why we did this up until this point but now where do we go okay 855-616-1620 let's talk to don don good afternoon
4: great show again jeff
2: hi don what do you think
4: um I disagree to, some, to a certain point here. There's also parents that have uh, autoimmune conditions. My wife has an autoimmune condition. So I live in a district that would have been very much on the right side of the political equation and is very much on the right side of the vaccination theory. So the problem I have is a child who is young, young enough that they cannot get vaccinated, but they have to go to school in person. If somebody there gets my child sick, my child gets my wife uh, sick, the chances are 90% she's going to pass away. So, and to the money part, I just want to side note this just really quickly. You do realize that if you just, if you put your kids in a private school or one of the new type schools that the government pushes for, and they get full funding for that child, and they kick that child out after two weeks, they keep that funding and the kid goes back to a public school.
2: Don, let me let. That's where the,
4: the,
2: yeah, the let, let's talk part, about the the first part, part. So your your point is your child will be virtual until they're twelve years old. That that's the decision you've made.
4: Um, if, if we, in regards to it, if we could get people to become vaccinated, then I would change that. But at this point, seventy percent would be herd immunity, and that would be a borderline number for my right. wife.
2: Right. So, so yeah, let's, assume gonna, let's assume you're never going. Let's assume you're never going to get to seventy percent immunity. So, right. uh, my, my question is: So then, you have committed the fact that your child will be learning virtually until they are at least twelve years old, fifth or sixth grade.
4: Yes. Okay. And he, by the way, straight A student throughout the entire time. Well, and and that, but that, there's a key key factor. We were involved in his homework every day.
2: Right. And I guess every and, single day. And see, Donna, I guess and uh, that's where I'll go back to what I said in the beginning for uh, I'm glad it worked out for your kid it has not worked out for most children and I guess if there's a situation like I say like a couple of our texters where you have a very very limited number of kids and there are compelling medical reasons. So you're going to just create that virtual academy for those kids, understanding that they're, they're not going to be able to experience the full curriculum. Oh, okay, yeah, may, maybe you can work something out. But that's not what they're talking about doing. This isn't, hey, you have to have a medical excuse for it. You you have to have some compelling situation. It, it is what we're going to end up giving you that option, even if there's no good reason for that. And I think the effect of that is... I mean, candidly, I I think the effect of that is to put huge financial strain on the teachers, on the classrooms, et cetera, et cetera. Now, again, if there's, you know, particularly compelling situations, but my guess is, Don, as I think this through, if if your wife has an autoimmune disease, okay, you, you don't. Your your kid probably shouldn't be around other kids anyways. I mean, if that, if that is really the concern that your kid is going to pick up measles or or something like that and and bring it home, I I don't know what you end up doing. Maybe that's the route, maybe that's one of the reasons that you you go to homeschool and stuff like that. I I think if it's working out for your child, that's great. But to take most kids, um, ages and say like a first or fifth through fifth or sixth grade, and we're going to consign you to, to virtual learning, I think that's not going to work out well for most of the children that are, you know, out there. Um, yes, Jeff, the kids can stay home forever. It's called homeschooling. Well, I mean, I think that's that's, you know, the, the whole idea of that, you know, and maybe that's the situation if you're afraid to, to have the kids go out in in the world. And I, I admit, look, I don't know how you deal with this when you parent, you have a parent who has autoimmune d- disease. What what do you do? It's not just school. It's do you not let your kid go out and socialize for, you know, the first 12 years of their life until they're eligible to be vaccinated. I mean, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know that there's a good answer to that, but overall for the school districts, absent extenuating circumstances, you Just give the parents the option of, again, being able to continue virtual school. We're going to have the taxpayers pay for it. I don't think you're doing anybody any favors. And this is Jeff Wagner. I have an example of God's way of telling you that you have too much time on your hands. There's a story on Bloomberg News today about they, they call them sedition hunters. And these are amateur these are not law enforcement people. These are amateur internet sleuths who are obsessed with what happened on January 16th. And and what they have done is they have devoted large portions of their life to searching the internet trying to link up a picture of someone that they might have seen like in the crowd or whatever and try to figure out who they are and then conduct their own independent investigations and then turn the information over to law enforcement. I mean, here's one of the descriptions. As he watched footage on the January 6th siege of the U.S. Capitol, Chris Sigurdsson, an out-of-work actor in Canada, what a surprise, found himself drawn to a particular image um, on the man's face as he was acting up was a look of demented glee. Sigurdsson, 58, out-of-work actor, has been growing obsessed with the riot, spending 40 hours a week poring over photographs and videos. He noticed a resemblance to the man in the sweatshirt And somebody that he had seen bragging about what he had done on a different video recorded at a hotel in Virginia. When he looked closely, he could see that they were the same person carrying the same backpack. He posted his finding on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, the story is that they were able to find somebody, and the guy, criminal charges were issued. Okay, 40 hours a week, unemployed guy tracking down essentially trying to do law enforcement's job now i mean i i appreciate and i'm sure the government supports all this this help but i mean who has 40 hours a week to try to look through grainy internet footage and try to search the web and find out, gee, I, I saw this guy in the crowd there and I think this is who it is and, and maybe we should be looking at, at him to see whether there should be charges. I have no problems bringing charges against people that were involved in the insurrection or the riot or whatever you want to call it at the Capitol on January 6th. But it does seem to me interesting that cottage industry that has developed with all these people who are now just obsessed with this and they're spending their entire life searching the Internet, trying to identify people who might have been there. I mean, 40 hours a week? Really? Back with more in just a minute.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is The Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Almost every reporter, print reporter, Electronic reporter in the country will disagree with me, but I think I am right. All right, here here is the deal. Over the weekend, uh, Joe Biden's Justice Department said we will no longer, no longer go after records that belong to quote unquote journalists trying to identify the sources. We're, we're not going to do it. We're, we're, we're sorry. Um, we're sorry if this has happened in the past. And this, of course, all follows a story that it turns out that during the Trump administration, beginning of the Biden administration, the Justice Department had subpoenaed records uh, of email of a handful of New York Times reporters trying to find leaks. I think Biden is wrong in abandoning this. Now, hear me out on this. The way it works in this country is that there are very, very in many cases, there are laws, not just rules, but there are laws which make it illegal for people who have access to certain information. Maybe it's classified information. Um, maybe it's protected information, like, for example, the existence of a grand jury sub- investigation, things like that, or circumstances behind it. The law makes it illegal for those people to disclose that information. And there's a good reason why the law makes that, you know, illegal. I mean, if we, let, let's, let's go back you know, 70 years, and let's talk about, you know, America racing to try to develop the atomic bomb. Well, all right, if you've got people, as it turned out there were, who were leaking information and details about that to the Russians, right, that compromises our national security. And so that's why you have laws that say you are not allowed to do that. All right. Nevertheless, you have people that do it. You have people that leak that information, maybe because they are traitors. All right. Maybe it's because they don't like the particular policy. I don't think we should be building an atomic bomb. So here I'm going to provide that information to the press. They will then send it on and maybe we can get public pressure to, you know, curtail this. All right. That that's. The, that's the thinking of it. Some people think that they're just, they're motivated by this higher calling so that the laws should not apply to them or they don't care if they apply to them. All right, so you have people that are leaking classified information, leaking protected information. Maybe, again, let's look at the legal context. It's a federal crime for certain people involved with a federal grand jury investigation to leak information about it. But let's say you've got, I don't know you've got a prosecutor who just doesn't like Donald Trump and we're investigating Donald Trump so what I want to do is I want to feed the New York Times or the Washington Post I want to feed them information about what's going on in front of the grand jury and I know I'm not supposed to do it and I know it's illegal but nevertheless I'm I'm going to do this because I want to try this case in the court of public opinion right so you have those different rules now the way the law works And it's an interesting example of the law because it comes to bear with the First Amendment. Under the law, if, say, a news outlet, like it's the New York Times, for example, a reporter gets classified information. All right. Somebody is committing a crime by providing that reporter the information. Well, the reporter, the reporter can run with it. And the New York Times or the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel or the Washington Post, they can publish it. It doesn't matter that the information was obtained from an illegal source. And it's sort of interesting because if you go and you buy a TV in an alley from a guy named Fred who's selling it off a truck and it turns out that, you know, you've you've purchased a, a stolen TV. Well, you, you know, if you get a subpoena, you don't get a chance to say, well, I don't have to tell you where I got this from. I mean, you're, you're going to be ordered to, to disclose that. But in the context of, again, reporting this stuff, the reporters don't have to disclose. They The reporters, they can put this information out there. They can print the secrets to the atomic bomb if they choose to do it. They can report all the stuff from the uh, grand jury investigation. It doesn't matter that it was illegally obtained. By that, I mean that the person who was providing them the information was violating the law and doing it. The reporters can run with it. It's not like they violated the law themselves. So that's the kind of the way it works. Well, that doesn't mean, though, that the person who's leaking the information doesn't mean that they're not committing a crime. So what has happened historically, and this is through the Obama Justice Department, And through the Trump Justice Department and Justice Departments before that. What's happened is one of the things in an effort to try to find out who's leaking the secrets to the atomic bomb, one of the things that has been done is let's let's get records from these journalists. Let's let's look at their phone records. Let's get their email logs, and if, for example, it turns out that you've got uh, my producer, Gru, who's working for a government agency, and all of a sudden you see that there's 10 calls from Gru's phone to a, a phone that is associated with the New York Times reporter, or vice versa, it, it might give you a tip-off that, hey, maybe Gru is that source. So anyhow, that's what the investigation it has been. It's been we're going to try to, we want to obtain the reporter's call logs. We want to try to obtain their email records because we want to see if if it identifies who is committing a crime by providing them the information. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the AccuNet Mortgage talk and text line. I don't have a problem with this. Look, I, I understand, you know, the, the press, whether it's the TV stations or the radio stations or the newspapers, I understand that they can run with this story and there's, there's not going to be any consequences for them. But I don't think that their reporters should be immune from an effort to try to identify who their sources are because that source is committing a crime. And if it turns out that you've got, you know, calls, again, from a New York Times reporter to a phone number associated with a a personal phone associated with a prosecutor in the district attorney's office or in the U.S. attorney's office, or there's calls to a phone number that is associated with somebody that works, I don't know, in developing the nuclear bomb back in the age, I don't have a problem with doing that. It's not to prosecute the reporter. It is rather to identify who is violating the law in leaking the information in the first place. 855-616-1620. That is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Now, the Biden administration is freaked out. no. We're not going to compel journalists to give up source information. We're, we're we're not going to pursue them. So what they've essentially said is we're we're essentially giving a freebie to people inside the government to leak classified information because we're going to make it much 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 more difficult for us to figure out who is doing that. How is that in the interest of the country? 855-616-1620 we discuss. Jeff Wagner on
1: WTMJ. <laughs>
2: which is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Here's the way the Washington Post reports this. The Justice Department on Saturday announced it will no longer use subpoenas or other legal methods to obtain information from journalists about their sources. A major policy shift that came just the day after the New York Times revealed that the department had prohibited the newspapers, lawyers and executives from disclosing an effort to seize email records of four reporters going forward, consistent with. President Biden's direction, the Department of Justice, in a change to its longstanding practice, will not seek compulsory legal process in leak investigations to obtain source information from members of the news media doing their job. The department strongly values a free press protecting First Amendment values and is committed to taking all appropriate steps to ensure the independence of journalists. So, in other words, because... Gee, we're concerned that we might get a bad headline in the New York Times. We are willing to make a policy decision that we're going to—I don't know—allow people inside the government to leak confidential information, maybe confidential information which can be harm, put people's lives at risk. Be harmful to I don't know the country. We're going to let them do it, and we're going to tie our hands as to how we go out and try to investigate that information. And I, I mean, th- this is this is what the frustrating aspect of of this is. Why would you limit that? I'm not saying prosecute the journalists. All right, they, they get a free pass. That that's the thing. And if they want to put information out there, which uh, again can jeopardize operate covert operations um can I, again undermine efforts by the legally obtained government by, by legally elected government of the united states that's okay i mean that, that that's fine that's a that is a decision that ends up getting made. But where I draw the line is saying that we're going to tie investigators' hands as to how you're going to identify that, and that's precisely, you know, what they are doing. Jeff, what if a journalist gets information from a whistleblower, and that whistleblower shared information about illegally uh, illegal activity conducted by the president and/or his staff? Well, I, I don't, I don't know what that that question. I don't know what it means exactly. If you have obtained information that you are not legally allowed to disclose, then you shouldn't legally be able to disclose it without consequences. Now, that that's just the bottom line of this, because you can't have individual government employees making decisions about, gee, I, I, I don't like this law or I don't like that, so I'm not going to so i'm going to um i'm just going to take it upon myself to share it with the uh, with the news media and i'm going to expose it so i mean that if you are by the way if you are covered by various secrecy acts and things of the like, it, it's a different sort of world. We're not talking about that clan, you know, that, that typical whistleblower stuff. If you come into, if you have access to protected information and you feel that I, I need to disclose that, there are chains and there are channels that you go through to disclose it. Debbie in West Bend, Debbie, you're on WTMJ. Hi,
3: I. When you were explaining the whole thing, it just seems to me that this is kind of a checks and balances, like we have in other parts of our government, um, you know, the administrative and or judicial, et cetera. But anyway, this is a check and balance to see that the press does have some moral obligation to decide, you know, if this is something that is, but we also it is, sorry, <laughs> they back. do have some obligation to, to be, you know to think about what they're releasing, and but the government also should have a way to um, you know put that balance on the other side. Is this something that's illegal that's being released? Then yes, we should have. It seems that is a process to do it, and it creates a checks and balance.
2: Well, well, it 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 does because I mean right now there, there's really no accountability on on the press and see and and that that that's all fine. I mean if somebody calls a reporter and has information that they are not legally allowed to disclose. But the grand jury investigation, I'm going to give you the details of a grand jury investigation. I want you to keep my identity anonymous. You provide that information. There, there's no there, there's no prohibition. The reporter can run with it. The newspaper can run with it. It doesn't matter that the person who provided that information has violated the, the law. Well, we have these laws for a reason. To me, to your point, that this is that check and balance. It's like saying, okay, okay, you, you get to make that phone call and you get to disclose that, but we get to investigate where that leak came from and why you would, why you would tie the, the investigators' hands and stop them from using perhaps the best evidence. It just makes no sense to me. It, it's just essentially saying, go leak confidential information and we're going to make it more and more difficult to figure out who did it. And I, I don't understand why we would do that. I agree. Thanks, no, for, th- thanks for taking for my call. Call. No, I appreciate it, Debbie. And, and that's kind of the, the underlying issue. This is not a war on reporters. This is not locking up reporters for um, failing to provide sources. That's not what this is. This is saying, hey, we're, we're, we're going to go look at, at the records. Okay, we're going to pull the records from the, the phone logs for this reporter's cell phone, and, and we're going to see is he or she making all sorts of phone calls to somebody. That's what we're going to look at, and maybe if we find – and look, it's not a perfect thing. I'm not suggesting that every time – Because my my guess is if you're going to be committing a crime and leaking information to a reporter for The New York Times, you're probably smart enough not to use your own cell phone. That would be kind of my guess. My guess is you go and you buy one of those burner phones and you make the calls and you throw it out. So I I understand that it's not going to necessarily be a perfect way to do it. But still, it's an investigative technique. Why wouldn't you take advantage of it simply because, I guess, in the Biden administration's world, it's politically incorrect to do it and we don't want to see bad stories about us in the New York Times so here we're we're going to again make it much more difficult to catch people who are violating federal law as leakers don't get it
0: welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ
2: There is a message being sent here. An eighteen year old man from Pewaukee is accused of starting a fire that caused extensive damage at his ex girlfriend's house. Nicholas Cranick was charged June third in Waukesha County Circuit Court with arson of a building, etc., etc. Um according to the criminal complaint, police responded to a garage fire at this particular address in Pewaukee about 1.20 PM on May twenty seventh. The single story home garage was engulfed by flames. The extra the ex girlfriend, who is underage, said she had begun Gun arguing with Kranich before the fire uh, in his vehicle. He attempted to stop the girl from getting out of the car by grabbing the backpack she was wearing. Eventually, he let her out of the car. When the girl entered her home, she said she witnessed Kranich throw what appeared to be a firework into the garage. Shortly afterwards, she heard a single loud boom but did not see smoke or fire until about five minutes later. The complaint said Kranich drove away after throwing the firework. The girl called Kranich and he told her, I threw it because I wanted to get back to you. They then communicated afterwards. He sent a message. Um, it was a tiny bottle rocket. It wasn't supposed to set the house on fire. Please don't say it was me. Oh, my God, I am going to jail. The girl told police that she and Kranich had multiple other incidents in the past. In March of 2021, Kranich threw a phone at her face, which caused a popped blood vessel in her eye. It noted that in January 2021, he deliberately burned the girl with a lighter. According to the complaint, Kranich also punched the girl in the stomach three times and threatened to kill her in a separate January incident. Okay, now, Melissa Barkley. I am a firm believer that when the universe talks to you, you fail to listen at your own peril. So you have this gal who's dating this guy who allegedly has hit you in the face with a phone, which caused a pop blood vessel in your eye, has burned you with a lighter, has allegedly punched you in the stomach on multiple occasions, and now has burned down your parents' home by throwing a bottle rocket into the garage. At this point in time, is the universe saying to this underage girl, you know, you're you're dating a a loser and you need to move on?
0: (laughs) I keep thinking there has to be some sort of psychological... Um obviously abuse going on or Stockholm syndrome that would make you want to stay with the person that's doing all these things right. do you know what i'm saying oh yeah okay so so
2: right here and, and, and if the message has not gotten through here is the message now when your boyfriend gets hacked off and burns down your parents garage oh, man. Um, it's time to find a different boyfriend it's not going to get better
0: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: I do not think this child is a victim and I do not think the school district is wrong. Now, over the years, we we have had various discussions of of dress codes and, and reasonable people can disagree about whether a school's dress code is too restrictive or not restrictive enough, but I think schools have a right to set dress codes. And then you know, if if that's the school's dress code, you you have an obligation to follow it. And if you think it's a bad dress code, well, all right, we elect school boards. Then you you run for school board or you find school board members who, uh, or candidates who, you know, would agree with you and you get them elected. That's the way it goes. But if the rules are the rules, I think the rules should be followed. Which brings me to the story of Ever or Ever Lopez of Asheboro, North Carolina. So here's the deal. He is graduating last Thursday night from high school. This is the way the New York Times presents the first couple paragraphs, then I'll tell you the rest of the story. Ever Lopez or Ever Lopez of Asheboro, North Carolina, was set to become the first member of his immediate family to graduate from high school, but instead he said he was denied his diploma because he wore a Mexican flag over his gown at the graduation ceremony this past week. Until his name was called on Thursday, the graduation ceremony at Ashboro High School had played out like any others. student's name was called, the student received a diploma holder, handshakes were exchanged, and people clapped. But when Mr. Lopez approached the center of the stage with a red, white, and green Mexican flag draped over his shoulders, he had a brief exchange with the school's principal, her name is Penny Crooks, drawing boos from the audience. After a moment, he walked off the stage, raising a fist as he returned to his seat. The moment was captured on video. Mr. Lopez, who was born in the United States to Mexican immigrant parents, said in an interview on Sunday that he wore the flag because he is proud of his Mexican roots. The Mexican flag means everything to me and my family because it's what is in our blood. It's where we came from, and i do anything to represent. Um, Okay. Um, apparently then, you know, what goes on is they said it issued a statement saying he hadn't received his diploma because he violated the school's dress code and because he had distracted from the importance and the solemnity of the ceremony. This is what the school says. Graduation is a milestone event, and it is grossly unfair for one individual to diminish the event by violating the dress code. The incident is not about the Mexican flag. Students were encouraged to express their identity by decorating their mortar boards, you know, the the hat, the cap you wear. A number of students followed the protocol and had the Mexican flag or other representations appropriately displayed during the ceremony. And so then they said, you know, we're going to meet with the kid afterwards to give him his diploma. And my guess is he's ultimately going to get it. But the story now is this outrage that they didn't give him his diploma when he walked across the stage wearing the Mexican flag. Now, the rules, I have the what they said in front of me, there were rules for the graduation ceremony. And they they said that men were supposed to wear like a collared shirt and slacks. And there were certain rules for women as well. And that if they want to decorate stuff, they can put the mortar boards on. And then they also said that the the regular school dress code applies. And while the school dress code doesn't specifically say you can't wear a flag, there's rules that make it clear that you couldn't regularly come to school wearing a, a flag. So the kid... Shows up. He's up on the stage. He's got this Mexican flag around his shoulders. Everybody else is dressed in the traditional cap and gown. And people have their top of their mortar boards, you know, with different sayings and stuff. But he's wearing the Mexican flag. He's the only one that's doing something like that. And the principal says, I'm not giving you your diploma, at least not right now. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have no problems with people expressing themselves. I, I I don't. And if this kid wants to wave the Mexican flag, if this kid wants to adorn himself with the Mexican flag, he he can do it. He can do it before the ceremony. He can do it after the ceremony. But I'm sorry, I don't think the school in this case is wrong. They have a dress code. They are trying to prevent people from distracting From It's everybody's graduation, and they are trying to, in this case, prevent one person or one handful of people from distracting from the event. What if instead of this kid wanting to wear the Mexican flag, the kid had showed up with a Confederate flag? or, you know, fill, wanted to wear a Confederate flag. Do you think that there would be any outrage about that? No. Everybody would say, no, this is clearly inappropriate. You're not wearing a... Conf- what if he said, look, my this is Ashboro, North Carolina. Look, my, my family is 18th generation or 17th generation or whatever. My, my you know, great-great-great-great-great grandfather fought in the Civil War. I want to celebrate my, you know, Southern roots. I want to wear a Confederate flag. Would anybody think that was appropriate? My answer is no. Of course people would say, no, you, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. In this particular case, this, in my opinion, child decided that he was going to try to put himself above the interests of the rest of the class. The, the rules, I think, were very clear, and I don't think they're going to argue that he knew that he knew that he wasn't violating the dress code. The, uh, the argument is going to be, well, how dare you not give me my diploma? He's going to graduate. I'm sure at some point in time he's going to get his diploma, but I'm sorry, I don't see this kid as as a victim. And if you don't enforce certain standards, like I say, the way the school decided to deal with this, you know, uh, I'm looking at their statement. They said, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, we allow students, we started allowing students to decorate their mortar boards as a nod to their individuality and creativity. We are very clear with students that this is the only acceptable deviation from the standard cap and gown regalia. Unfortunately, we will now be reevaluating that decision for future senior classes in light of the situation that occurred last night. Okay, so who's wrong? Is the kid wrong? Is the school wrong? 855-616-1620. I, I side with, I side with the school. And for everybody who wants to jump in, and say, well, no, the, the Mexican flag is okay. All right, then then is the Confederate flag okay? I mean, you, you you tell me, is there any sort of limitation at all? Do schools have a right to have a dress code? And my answer would be, yeah, they do. Okay, we discuss in just a moment.
1: This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. He embarrassed himself. It's a graduation ceremony, not the Olympics. Jeff, the principal did exactly what he should. The student knew he was was not allowed to do that and he knew we could do. That would be decorate the mortarboard and he decided not to and he knew there would be reactions um, and he was ready for it. Well, yeah, that's, that's what this was. This was clearly, I think, a kid that was trying to, he was seeking attention and he didn't care about the rules. Jeff, my daughter graduated this weekend from Cedar Grove, Belgium High School. There was an Hispanic student that had a Mexican flag but also it was just a sash like the national honor society when students wear no one was offended but i think the whole flag is too much i agree with the school in that instance um yeah, well yeah right they they allow, like I say, you could decorate your mortarboard, and if you wanted to put the the flag, the Mexican flag, the Irish flag, whatever, on your mortarboard, it wouldn't be a problem, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to wrap himself literally in the flag. Jeff, the kid was wrong. If it was a German flag, which is my heritage across the stage, would I be on the national news? Jeff, my first response was that he should be allowed to wear the flag colors, but when you brought up the Confederate flag, that made me look at it differently. You cannot treat the them differently so I agree I think the school was in the right um, Jeff, we are in the Elkhorn School District, and we had a kid wear a Mexican flag draped over his shoulders. No one blinked an eye. He was handed a diploma, and life goes on. No one was distracted. Now we were, were distracted when another kid screamed like a wild animal when his name was called. Um, yep, that was obnoxious. I guess our school didn't have a dress code. I think the Confederate flag example you gave is not apples to apples. It's not his ethnicity. Eh, I think it's probably closer than you think to being an. I think it's a fair analogy. Um, Jeff, probably everybody wants to make a statement. That's why they have rules. I think the school is correct. At what point in time do you draw the line on on wearing flags and again the rule is really clear you can decorate your mortarboard, but otherwise it's just cap and gowns and nobody's saying the kid couldn't wave the mexican flag you know in the parking lot beforehand or afterwards but is it too much to say okay for the graduation ceremony you know we want the kids to come up and we want them to wear the caps and gowns um period um let's see uh Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Will this affect anyone's life in ten years? Well, no, but most stuff doesn't affect anyone's life in ten years. Jeff, what if I wore my Trump twenty twenty four flag or my thin blue line flag? Well, you, you understand it would be written about, but not with the same tone. Um, Jeff, if it was an American flag, the flag of Ireland or Guiana, would there be the same controversy? Um, the Confederate flag is viewed as a symbol of racism. It is not an equal analogy. No, I actually, I, I mean, the, the point is, Yes, I I believe if he were wearing an American flag or the flag of Ireland or Guyana or any other country's flag, you would have had a similar reaction to it. They wouldn't have given him. They would not have given him the diploma because the rules don't allow you to wear flags. Now, um, the mom, let's see, um, to me, let's see, the mother says that, uh, to me, this was an act of racism, not just to my son, but to the entire Hispanic community. To which I say, give me a break. I I mean, does everything always have to be about racism? The rules are, you're not supposed to wear the flags. He wears the flag. They had other kids that had the flag up on their mortar boards, the, the Mexican flag, and they allowed that. So, I mean... This, this idea of constantly, constantly, constantly playing the race card. Oh, this is an insult to the Hispanic community. No, it's like we we want caps and gowns. And if you want to put the Mexican flag on the top of your cap, you can do it. But we don't want you coming up on stage draped in it. Let's talk to um, Tom in Watertown. Hi, Tom.
4: Hi, Jeff. Hey, uh, I, I was also appalled. But, you know, the other thing that got me is... Would it, now, now you could start wearing America, uh, Make America Great caps if you wanted to. They should have got him before he got on that stage, and they should have escorted him and his parents out of that gymnasium to teach the kid that, yeah, there are rules in this uh, school, and these are the rules that we set, and these are the rules that you follow. In life, you have to follow rules. Not only that, but then the parents wanted an apology. I would have told them to pound sand.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, right, because they see this as an example of, of racism, and that that's the other frustrating aspect of the story. I am sure there is real yeah, racism, ladies. but they're right, exactly. In fact, this isn't right. This isn't racism. This is the kid was wearing the flag, and for people who say, "Well, it's racism," well, if that was the case, why did they not have a problem with all the other kids that had the flags, the Mexican flag, on their mortar board? No, it wasn't wasn't racism. Now, I'm getting a number of texts saying, "Oh, they should just have ignored it. That they gave the kid by doing this, they're giving." the kid the attention that he deserves. Yeah, and, and that's, that is, of course, an element. I guess the, the question then becomes, if you're a school administrator, are, you're, you're really then damned if you do and damned if you don't. You've got these rules that are in place, and somebody decides to knowingly and intentionally violate them, and then when you call it out, they end up playing the victim card, and people just get absolutely outraged. Oh, how dare you not allow the kid to express himself? Well, the kid has lots of opportunities to express himself. All they asked him to do all he had to do was for the 45 minutes or an hour of this graduation ceremony ended. Just, just, you know, comply, go along, wear the cap and gown, decorate the mortarboard. Everything's going to be cool. He didn't want to do it. And now he's portraying himself as the victim and he's going to graduate and he's going to ultimately get his diploma. Racism? I don't think so. I'm with you, Tom. A need to apologize. No way. And this is Jeff Wagner, so very glad to have you with us. Well, yesterday or over the weekend at the State Democratic Convention, Tony Evers, I don't think, surprised anybody by announcing that he was running for re-election, calling himself the state's real education governor. Now, of course, that's interesting to take that position, given the fact that with the pandemic and the schools being closed, um, you've had kids that have largely regressed dramatically. Tony Evers, of course, believes that the, the way you're the education governor by trying to get as much money as you possibly can and throw that money into public school systems. If you if you mess around with private schools or charter schools or parochial schools, that, that's okay because that's not really education. But let's throw as much money as we can into the public school system, despite the fact that there, there's not really that much of a link between throwing money at a problem and necessarily educational results. For example, you know, just look at how much money per pupil goes into MPS and look at the results that, that come out. But in any event, you know, he, he says he's, he's running. So how does this all play out? Well, I, I think it's, I think Evers, who, as I've said before, is, is an accidental governor. I believe in 2018 that Evers's election was not because anybody supported Tony Evers, really. It was because you, you had a huge number of anti-Scott Walker people, or in particular, anti-Donald Trump people that, that came out, particularly in Dane County. The whole idea was, we want to send a message that we don't like Donald Trump, so we're going to show up and we're going to vote against anybody with an R after their name, and that... That turnout in Dane County was enough to get Tony Evers over the hump. Plus, I think there was some, you know, maybe some Scott Walker fatigue, et cetera, et cetera. Well, 2022 is going to be a much different election and Tony Evers is going to be running on, on his own merits. And he's going to have to be defending the unemployment fiasco. He's going to have to be depending, defending A number of the health department policies that came out and the lockdowns and the economic damage that all that stuff caused. He's going to be running on his own record, and he's not going to have the wind at his sails that he had back in 2022, until 2018. Now, does that mean he's going to lose? Not necessarily. I think it's going to be Wisconsin elections are almost always extremely close. I think some of it's going to depend on, you know, who, as always does, you know, who are going to be the Republican candidates that emerge, and and what type of campaigns are they going to run, and I think there's still a lot of sifting that's going on there, but it's going to be a close election one way or the other, but the difference in 2018, like I say, is I believe Evers was elected just as the, the fill-in-the-blank slot, and it wouldn't have mattered whether it was Tony Evers or any one of five or six other dozen other Democrat candidates going to be different in 2022 Evers is going to be running on his record and that's a record that's going to get a lot of scrutiny and if the Republicans handle it right a lot of that scrutiny is not going to be positive including his position that he just doesn't understand how continuing to pay unemployment benefits extra unemployment benefits is hurting the labor market. Um, Okay, when we come back, lots of stuff. It's an icon, and it is returning. Golf balls in Yellowstone Park, and the summer job market. It's going to be an interesting 2 o'clock hour. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: So, Melissa. Did you see that Summerfest announced that comedian Dave Chappelle was going to be coming and performing at the amphitheater? Yeah, that's a big deal. Okay, so here's my question. He's obviously very popular, and a couple years ago, he had a very successful four-night run at the Riverside. Now, the the difference is the Riverside seats like 2,500 people. The amphitheater seats, what, 20,000 people or whatever. I just... How does comedy play in that large venue? That that's 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 tough to put a comedian in in essentially an amphitheater well, like that. Well, I
0: think we're seeing that Summerfest looks a little different this year. It's going to be mainly on the weekends, so I think that'll play into part. Um, you know, when you want to go see a good comedy show on a Friday or Saturday night, um, and it could be outside. It's beautiful. What do you think?
2: I think it's tough to do comedy in that kind of venue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think comedy is a more intimate sort of thing. And, and it's when, when I, and you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, now having said that, I, I was, I've told the story many times before. I was not at the Ice Bowl, but I was at Summerfest the night George Carlin got arrested in 1972 for the seven words you can't say on television or, in Milwaukee, and I, 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 and that, that of course, it, it was a larger crowd than that because back then, the Summerfest main stage used to be, it, it was free, and it used to be on the north end of the grounds, and and they, I mean, my God, that night, that they, they, there, there probably were at least seventy five thousand people, just um, because George Carlin was not the headline; he was just one of the, Arlo Guthrie um, was the was the head performer, and they had. Uh, Uh, Pete Seeger, and they had the Siegel-Schwall Blues Band, and Brewer and Shipley, and they had George Carlin kind of crammed in in the middle of that, and it and and I remember I thought it was funny and I didn't realize he'd been arrested till afterwards. Of course, this was 1972, so my guess is three quarters of the people were stoned too. So I mean, you know, almost anything <laughs> would that. sound like to be funny. <laughs> but but I, I, if
0: there's anybody that's going to do it, I think Dave Chappelle. He's uh-huh. very popular. So I, you know, kind of testing the waters again. We'll okay, here, it. well, right,
2: and it, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see. And like, it's it's not a knock on him at all. It's mm-hmm. just it's tough to do a comedy performance in a venue that that's big. Okay, now here's the other interesting side part of this story, and how do you think fans are gonna react? Gru, you can weigh in on this too. How do you th- okay, here's the deal. Um, he, he has a policy that you, you are not allowed to bring cell phones and stuff into the venue because he doesn't want people filming this and all. So uh, Summerfest says no phones, cameras, or recording devices are gonna be allowed at the show. All smartphones and smart watches must be locked in yonder y o n d r. I don't even know what that is. Pouches upon entry for the duration of the show. Anyone caught with a phone in the venue will be ejected.
0: Those those are little contraptions that you can get to put your phone in, and they're safe and secure, and you can grab yeah. them on the way out. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think if you want to see them, you'll you'll do it. Crew.
5: If it's uh, anything like a Jack White show, because uh, Jack White does this, no, mm-hmm. no, ca- no camera phones or anything. Yep. There, it's a small pouch where you put it in and it, and it locks. Yeah, uh, so you don't have access yeah. to it. Um, I don't have an issue with it. I okay, mean, so
2: then how do you open it up?
5: Uh, you, you don't. I mean, it, it, you would go to I. I I'm actually not sure how it goes, because I, I actually haven't been to a Jack White show in a while since he started doing this. But um, I, I believe it's issued to you as you're walking in. I mean, yeah, going to an AmFam, you got to present your ticket, something like that. Right. I think it works the same way. Uh, whenever you're leaving, I, I don't really know how it works. There might be like a special but...
0: code with each ticket or something like that, but when you come back out. I don't know how it works, but I think... Um... I don't know. I think if you want to see a good show, that might be okay. I'm
2: just, I'm just, I'm I'm wondering the the practicalities of this. And again, I, I, I don't know how this stuff works, but I mean, I'm wondering the practicalities of this. If you, first of all, I, I mean, or well, you can just
0: leave it in your car. Well, right, right, right. But
2: okay, but Brett, yes, but I mean, we, people can't go ten minutes without having the access to their cell phone and stuff. Oh. I'm
5: just, I'll tell you what, though, there's there's nothing worse than being at a concert and having the two or three how many people are in standing in front of you have their phones up recording I, the whole time. I,
2: no, I, I don't. It takes I,
5: everything away. I,
2: I'm not arguing with the merits of the policy. I'm just thinking, okay, we we, we can't get people you can't get people of any age, particularly people who are, you know, the younger people to, to give up that cell phone for even a couple minutes. And, and I'm also, I'm wondering about the, again, the logistics of this, do you have to stand in line as you're leaving to get like, uh, get the thing opened up or, or whatever. And how's that going to work out? Yeah.
5: Thinking about it that way, I don't think the logistics of that would work out. So I I think it's, it's gotta be more convenient than that, you know, but, um, yeah, I I mean, people aren't going to be standing. It's 20,000 people. I'm just,
2: I'm just wondering, I mean, I, again, it's you have the right. I'm just wondering how I'm wondering how physically something like that works. Yeah, we're sure we'll find out more. And I'm also trying to imagine people showing up and saying, "Okay, we 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 need to lock up your cell phone, and you're not going to have access to it." Well, what do you mean I can't have access to my cell phone for a couple hours? Interesting. It's a first world problem, and it's a first world issue. Yonder pouches upon entry. Okay, go figure. All right. Okay. All right. It is an icon. It is returning. I have told this story multiple times. I am a huge fan of big boy restaurants. Okay. I'm just, I I grew up, I grew up um, going to the Marcus Big Boy restaurant that was on Port Washington Road in, in Glendale. Spent many, many a night at the, the Marcus Big Boy Road. I love the Big Boy hamburgers. Um, but I, I just, I, I, I love their milkshakes, you know. I just, I, I loved everything Big Boy. I told the story again earlier with with Carol Kane when she was in earlier. I I became fixated with like the Big Boy statues and, and years and years ago, I wanted to buy one on eBay, one of those giant ceramic statues that stand about eight foot tall. And I wanted to put it in my front yard in Whitefish Bay and with up lights and my late wife, again, looked at me with that look that um, all you ladies have learned from your mothers that says that I married a moron. And I said, okay, well, how about we move it into the backyard? And and that didn't get any more traction. But over the years, I, I've collected different big boy, like, bobbleheads, And, and some, some of you have been kind enough to send me that. I've gotten a number of listeners over the years have sent me, like, big boy little statues and stuff. So a couple of years ago, I met... Um, I, I'm at Hamburger Fest in, in Seymour, Wisconsin, the home of the hamburger, and my very, very dear friends, Jim and Nancy Campbell. And Jim has been one of the guys that makes the giant hamburger at Hamburger Fest, and they're um, they're actually my stepdaughter's father and son-in-law, uh, father and mother-in-law. We're... We're, we're not related, but it seems like we should be because we just love each other dearly. So anyhow, I, I'm up at Hamburger Fest. and They've got a hamburger museum there. And in front of the Hamburger Museum, they've got this pristine big boy statue that stands about four foot tall, uh, maybe maybe three and a half foot tall. It is in perfect condition. So I'm trying to buy it. I, I'm, I'm going into the people that run this and I'm saying, I want to buy it. And they say, well, no, it's it's like a display. I said, I, 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 I want to buy it. And I, I, I think maybe the word um, my wife would have elbowed me if I said this, it's kind of like money is no object. Tell me, what do you want for this? There's got to be a price for this. And they say, well, well, nobody's ever come in and, and wanted to buy it. So well, you got somebody. I'm right here. You know, you can buy all sorts of other big boy stuff because you've got this moron that just I want this. And of course, then my wife is like, what? What do you you know, what are you going to do with it? And I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure out a spot for it. And she's like, okay. But anyways, they wouldn't sell me the big boy. But I am just I, I love all things big boy. I love the big boy hamburgers. I love the brawny lads, all that type of stuff. I just and 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 I understand there's been places where over the years you could get variations of the Big Boy hamburger, but that, if for whatever reason, it, that a lot of that stuff hasn't taken off. So here's the announcement over the weekend. Wisconsin Big Boy LLC is thrilled to announce that they have acquired the franchise rights for Wisconsin for the nationally known beloved Big Boy restaurant brand. Two partners plan to open their first Big Boy location at the Jerry's Old Town restaurant site in Germantown. This site will be the flagship for these partners, working closely with Big Boys Restaurant Corporate out of Detroit, Michigan. The initial Germantown Big Boy restaurant will include a retail space selling Big Boy merchandise and food, a museum of Big Boy collectibles, an Art Deco collection of Big Boy statues, nostalgic photos, and social media interaction displays. The space will include a large selection of iconic Big Boy statues ranging from 9 to 12 feet tall. I tried to buy one. The location will be open seven days a week for lunch and dinner offering many of the big boy classics and most remembered menu items. There are plans to open multiple locations throughout southeastern Wisconsin over the next three years. They're also going to own and operate two big boy food trucks that will make official appearances. Okay, I'm jazzed by this. I I, I just, it's it's a part of me growing up, and I'm just jazzed by it. Now, I understand... For some people, you hear this, this, what is this big boy thing that this guy was talking about? And this, you mean this was this like chain restaurant? And they, they had them across the country. They were Mark's big boy here because they were owned by the Markets Corporation. Um, you know, they were Bob's big boy in California. They were all over different sort of places. But I'm jazzed by this. But I understand also that there's a lot of people for whom this means absolutely nothing. It is just this brand from the past. And the question is, why are people bringing it back? All right, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It, is this the time to revive this brand? Will it be a success? I mean, I'm I'm going to be there. There's no question about it. I'm going to be there, but I'm not enough to make it work. Will this work? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think so. I hope so. We discuss.
1: Back to Take Your Calls. Here's
2: WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, what can go wrong with this? I, I, figure, I I've i checked out how these yonder pouches work. We were talking about this. We'll get to the big boy in just a second. But we apparently at SummerFest for the Dave Chappelle show, everybody's cell phones, when you go into the amphitheater are gonna have to be locked up and I so here's what happens. Apparently as you it says as you enter the venue, the phone free area, your phone will be placed in a yonder Y O N D R pouch. Once inside, the pouch will lock. Um you'll maintain possession of your phone at all times. Right. Fine. To unlock um, to use your phone, what you have to do is you have to step outside of the venue. So you have to leave the amphitheater and tap it on any unlocking base. So they're going to have to have all these bases set up and people will presumably have to line up to to tap them. What could go wrong with that? Anyways, that's how the thing works. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I cannot tell you how geeked I am that that Big Boy is coming back, and I I think it's going to be a huge success. Let's start with Mike in Menominee Falls. Mike, you're on WTMJ.
3: Hi, Jeff. I saw this story uh, last week as well, or over the weekend, and uh, I share your excitement, although I have a little bit of skepticism in that Um, A very good friend of mine's father used to actually run the commissary here in Milwaukee for all of the Marcus big boy restaurants. And what she told me was that over the course of time, the Marcus Corporation kind of tweaked a lot of the recipes uh, at the big boy restaurants. So what is coming back may or may not actually be what people remember uh, from the 70s and 60s. I'm actually hopeful they can do it. Um I've actually been to a couple of big boys outside of the Milwaukee area right and you know they didn't quite meet what I remembered so we'll
2: see I'm excited as well though right, but you're right you got you gotta find the the old recipes for that and isn't that true because a lot of times you know they for example they've you know, the recipe for different beers has changed over the years, and sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. The, the Schlitz that they now sell, that I, I swear, that tastes exactly like the Schlitz I was drinking in 1975 or 1976. Other stuff, you know, not as much. But So you're right. You've got to get the recipes right. But thanks. For I, I, I hope it I, – I certainly hope it works. Jeff, we're very excited about Big Boy coming to Germantown. We live in Germantown and have been going to Jerry's for many years, looking forward to going back to our past, to the restaurant we grew up with. Hope to see you there. That's Wendy. Well, I'm definitely I'm definitely going to be there. Um, I don't remember the last time that I was in a big boy. I mean, I don't know. I guess I, I'm not sure I've been anywhere. I was going to say, oh, I remember this place when we, I was in San Diego, but I don't think so. I think that was a Denny's I went to. Um, Jim in Hale's Corners. Jim, you're on WTMJ.
3: Jeff, i got to tell you, this is a bizarre story that I'm going to tell you, but it's true. <laughs> this morning I woke up and I was thinking about Big Boy Fish, uh, fish and Chips. Sure. Okay. I said, I said, dang, I wish I could get some Big Boy Fish and Chips. And then I went to my computer and I get uh, uh, emails from the business journal and it said, Big Boy is opening in Germantown. And I believe that somehow I had a part in bringing it to Germantown.
2: <laughs> okay. Just, okay,
3: just maybe not really, but I, I am so stoked! I I used to go to the one on near Bayshore yeah. where you went, right? And uh, uh, just awesome! And and it, you're absolutely right about the recipes. Uh, if they don't get them the way that Marcus had them, it could be a little disappointing. Right, but. Um, um, I, I was going to get you a little figurine too
2: when I went there, but <laughs> well, I appreciate you'll know, get your own. I, I, thanks, right? I, I appreciate that. I, I can grab my own. Now, you, you're right about you, you're right about the recipes. Now, I bear with me. I've told this story before. I used to. I grew up um, right next to the big boy. There used to be a Barnaby's restaurant, you know, Barnaby's pizza and stuff, and that's where we hung out in high school in the seventies. And again, I've told the story before. I apologize for it. But a, a few years back, my brother and I. Um, for Father's Day, we, we take my niece and my nephew. Um, we, we take them down to the Arlington racetrack in um out, outside of Chicago, and uh, we, you know, there's a Barnaby's. as near as I can tell, there's two Barnaby's left. And so after we go to the track, we're, we're going to Barnaby's. And so we we drive and we go into the Barnaby's, and it looked exactly like I remembered from the 1970s. It, it did. It. I mean, you, you could have taken the one on Port Washington Road in Glendale and dropped it off in Arlington, Illinois, and so we order this stuff, and, and the booths are uncomfortable, and they're small because I'm bigger than I was in 1973 or whatever. And, you know, we order the pizza, and we order all this stuff. And, like, everybody else that we're with is kind of looking at us going – Huh, what, what, th- this is what you guys have been raving about. Um, here's a text which makes that same point. Jeff, I'll 100%, 100% support the business and I'm excited for the comeback. However, just like some other places that have been gone for 30 years, I'm wondering if my taste buds have changed or if I've, I've, I've acquired more taste. Um, yeah, and that, that was definitely the case. The Barnabys, I think it might have been the same but my my tastes had definitely changed over the years, but I'm going to still give it a chance. Uh, David in Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
3: Hey, Jeff. Um, Great topic. Actually, I used to, just for the record, I used to go to the big boy with my dad over there in Van Buren on the east side. Oh, sure. Right. Absolutely. And Yeah, they had a great buffet. And actually, you know, in Michigan, it's still very successful in Michigan. And... um, I I do think it will work here just because uh, I think, you know, they have enough um, food on the menu that they would satisfy most people as far as what they're looking for. Yeah. And and the way I look at it, there aren't too many family restaurants per se. A lot of those have kind of gone away and there really is in the North Shore area. Uh, there's a kind of a lack of that in, in some regard. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that it'll definitely work in German Germantown.
2: Yeah, no, thanks for calling. Well, I'm, I'm excited about it. Jeff, I grew up in Sheboygan County and never heard of Mark's Big Boy. When my husband and I got married in 1970, we moved to Milwaukee. We had a Big Boy restaurant behind our apartment at Highway 100 National Avenue. We would walk over once a week and have dinner there, love the Big Boy and their chocolate shakes. Yeah, they were those really thick shakes. I know our, our last caller, I know that I lived, when I was in law school, I lived in June, village there and they just kind of there, there was that that's where the the big boy was as well as the captain's steak joint which is a whole nother story also owned by marcus i um, mark in new berlin hi mark you're on wtmj
4: Oh hi yeah well, my daughter went to school up in northern michigan up in mark sure i remember when i took her to college i seen the big boy I know, Oh, there's a big boy here i couldn't believe it we stopped in actually you know they tweaked it it has to you know 2020 but it still had a you know salad buffet they the big boy, the double big boy, the brawny lad, uh huh. You know, the coleslaw. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be a, a you know, I always said, why don't they bring me, you know, put these here? Just like, why don't they bring. Me more white castles here. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's, it's
2: going to work. No, well, I, Mark, I hope you're right. I mean, more white castles. I like white castle too, but I that that's that that's a whole another topic. Yeah, there's the one in Kenosha. Yeah, I, I'm excited about this, and and it is that kind of nostalgia thing. Now, here's the message: nostalgia alone isn't enough to make something go. Nostalgia gets you there the first time. Nostalgia might get you back the second time, but if the food's not good and the service sucks and all that, people aren't going to go back. So, I mean. I mean, you, you've got to get it right. There, there's no question about it. But it's it's a great concept, and I hope these guys get it right. And um, I'm I'm looking forward to the grand opening. Whenever whenever they open it up, I'll I'll kind of be out there um, looking to order my brawny ladder, or probably the big boy hamper. That was always my favorite. All right. When we come back, we'll find out what John has on his mind on Wisconsin's afternoon news.